Walker, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody! Welcome back to another episode. Um, I know we've, it's been a, a week, or it's been a couple weeks since Ken's been on, um, and uh, happy to have you know lovely co-host back as usual. Um, as far as announcements go for the the upcoming you know whatever right couple of months. Um, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that we will be offering practical secure code review at DeepSec. Um, please sign up if you can. There are still seats available. Um, I know a lot of people have been planning. There's been some discussion on the Slack channel about the uh, the training. There are a few people in there. And, you know, if you have questions about what it is, what we're going to be offering, any updates, jump into Slack, ask us about those. Would love to have a discussion with anyone about it. Um, but we're looking forward to being in Vienna over that period. So, Sign up, come spend some time with us, and we'll talk secure code review. Outside of that, we are planning on a couple of other conferences. If you have conferences where you would like to see our training or workshop or a secure code review workshop, please send them along to us. Uh, we're very open to taking this and offering public courses in other places, not just uh, you know the kind of the standard Black Hat DEF cons. We do like those regional conferences quite a bit. Um, so I know we're gonna we're looking at options for CactusCon in Arizona in a couple of months, um, as well as applying for Black Hat Asia, and you know even a couple of conferences down in Australia. Uh, I know we'd love to get back down there. So yeah, if you've got something, jump into Slack or hit us up, DM us on Twitter, and we will you know we'll we'll put in a call for training or whatever it happens to be to get get some of those rolling. Uh, Ken, anything else that you wanted to talk about? Or yeah, actually, want to. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I want to promote John Pullen's training here. Let me put it oh, up yeah. on the screen. So John Pullen, who I both actually. Oh man, I screwed that up. Look at that. I, I ran it all together. I thought I was doing so good having that prepared. Uh, but anyways, um, there's supposed to be a space there between Pullen and the schema. But anyways, uh, so John Pullen, I work with him at. Uh, at GitHub, but Seth and I have worked with John. He's really, really, really talented, really, but also just like a really solid person to work with. Anyways, uh, John is giving, and he's a good trainer. Uh, so John is giving some uh, training on, yeah, he, we've, we've given, we've both given training with John, but we've also like been there as like an assistant as he gave me, uh, gave the training and he, he's a good trainer. So he's going to be at the Global AppSec OWASP event in San Francisco in November, he's going to give a one-day course, and it's on uh, defense in-depth engineering. If you read the description, it's really interesting. It's uh, it's it's basically how to architect an application for for not just like securely, but like uh, hey, you you might have an incident in the future. Here are the things you have to be prepared for, and here's how you might want to arch architect your application, or here are some patterns or you know common patterns that that. And mistakes that people make and here's ways to uh to prevent that in your application and here's how to securely build um uh just a good architecture and application in general so yeah highly recommend you check out john's training um it'll be well worth it and i think at the price point the wasp is uh charging it's it's a steal so yeah it definitely is right like that's um well and we won't be there right like uh, at um, global AppSec in san francisco um Right, like the I, that's the same week that we're going to be in Vienna uh, for DeepSec. So 
if you yeah if you are going to global appsec you know check out yeah john's training it's always good um and there are others there as well i know a couple of the other trainers as i was looking over that page right uh, there's some other good good um trainings available right uh, I, I don't know. I, Ken, this was one item I know we've talked about a couple of times, just you and I personally, that I did want to bring up on the podcast is the state of you know security training in general, right? Like not necessarily specific to what we're doing from a secure code review perspective, but just the the offerings that are out there. Um, like I, I, I know we, we go to a lot of kind of technical security conferences and... Um, I have opinions, right? <laughs> like, uh, like I, I look at some of the black hat trainings or even like the, you know, the other DEF CON trainings, the deep, like, Hey, build an exploit trainings. And, um, I, I don't know how to say this like kindly, but I find a lot of it to be very edge case and not useful on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't know if you've found that from trainings that you look at or trainings that you might be interested in. Um, like what, what is your general take on trainings that are offered? Uh, but do you mean just at conferences or do you mean uh, in the, the corporate world or, or is it all of that or yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I probably need to clarify a little bit more, right. Um, Let's just let's just take it from a conference perspective, like trainings that are offered at conferences. Yeah, it depends on the conference. Like when we went to Locomoco, I was like, man, maybe I need to leave our course and go check out some of the other courses. There, there's good trainers there, man. Sometimes yeah. that happens. Sometimes you go to a conference, you're like, man, there's some really good trainings here. I kind of wish I could go, but I'm busy training. Um, so it just depends on the conference. But it, it, you know, it does tend to be when I look at like the bigger security, like your. Uh, you know, any kind of conference. I'm not, I don't want to pick on any specific conference, but when I'll give you a genre of conference, one that isn't specific to one niche part of security, but it's just a general yeah. sort of like, yeah, broader scope. Uh, and a lot of different niches are represented in that security conference. So at those places, yeah, there are, um, I think people work hard to curate the, the, the trainings, but there, there does often seem to be some stuff that's like, it's cool. It's like really cool. Uh, not super practical day to day, but it's, it's useful. Nonetheless, I think, um, the, <laughs> it's a little unfortunate though, when those, those niche, those niche trainings cost like, you know, like 3,500 or $5,000 or whatever. Yep. I think that's a little unfortunate just because that is such a, I mean, at the same time you could argue, well, because it's so specific and so, you know, special case, like, um, you know, maybe that's why it costs so much. Uh, and, and you probably, I wonder in those cases, if you don't have people from like, you know, government agencies who have a specific like need for that, that level of, of depth in, in a very narrow topic. Um, if, if that's not why that's offered and, and you see students signing up, but yeah, on the whole, the other issue I've seen, um, is actually a lack of preparedness. That's that's the, the other thing. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily just the topics. Is I've watched because I've definitely seen people get super excited. Um, you know, when we had a consultancy, we would send people pay for them to go to go do training and stuff like that. Right? That's what you do. And then they would walk away. They would be like, "Oh, I'm super stoked to go do this." I remember this happened at a since DerbyCon's closed now. I'll just say it was DerbyCon. Um, 
and I remember, I forget the year, but uh, we went there and they were really stoked for the training. They were really psyched for it. And afterwards, it was a huge letdown because it wasn't necessarily that the content wasn't okay or whatever. It was just there was a total lack of preparedness for the for the course by the on part of the instructor. And then, you know, the the exercises were wrong. The the um the, what the the printed out material and what was like actually presented. There were some mismatches in I think the that and the exercises. So they yeah. led that led to some confusion. And then they had to go back. And the instructor had to go back and correct it. And, and it was just, yeah, it was a slog. So anyways, those are the probably like the, uh, the thoughts I have about conference trainings. Yeah, no. And th- that that's valid, right? I, you know, I know that most of the people putting on conferences are trying to put in like that, you know, trainings that are relevant to the community at large that, it, that are attending the conferences. Um, I do see quite a bit of focus on the the edge cases, things like, hey, I'm going to go develop a, you know, a Windows, you know, exploit for XYZ vulnerability and right, like super cool to exercise those muscles, kind of learn how to do buffer overflows and things like that. But then I, I, I also start to question from a validity side of things, how many people actually need that sort of a training, right? Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I, it's not really my place to, you know, tell people where to spend their money and what they're interested in. But on the flip side, from a community perspective, I look at all of these like job openings that are out there and how many of them actually require you to be able to write a buffer overflow. Right. And hmm. that's where I start running into issues is I'm like, man, we, you know, the, the other offerings that are out there may not be as, I don't know, sexy in general. Right. Like I, I guess that is the, is the term, right. Um, or as like, I, I mean, cause we have a tendency to do this in information security, right? Like um, we focus on these really like the new, the upcoming exploits, the, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. Like these kind of edge cases for specific CVEs, right? Like, you know, we brand exploits and everybody jumps on that bandwagon of, oh, these are these awesome new branded exploits. But the basics, we just suffer at the basics so much. Um, And that's usually where the exploits actually happen or the really bad breaches happen. Um, Right. So, I, I mean, the Uber hack, right. This this most recent that we talked about or that I talked about last week with Daniel um, that falls right in this category. It's 101 application security issues that, um, for whatever reason, got bypassed, overlooked. Um, and, and I mean, even the Optus one, right? Like both of these, it's it's like 101 style, like basics that training could have solved or, you know, I, you know, I, I just... I start to question who actually is, is on any of that. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's funny you say all that too, because there was a, I remember I was thinking about this case where in Maryland, uh, it was a place in Maryland and they did like, uh, I don't know, three letter agency style work. And uh, I was very clear that I do application security stuff and uh, they wanted to, you know, it was, it was, they worked with those agencies, but it was like, you know, a regular, uh, private company. So they, um, anyways, they, they, they brought me in, they did this whole interview thing and they were like, they kept asking me about buffer overflow exploits. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, like I can walk you through the, but like, that's not my specialty. I mean, I can talk through it, but like, that's, I came here for, for like web security stuff. 
And man, they would not let relent. It was all about buffer overflows. I was like, I don't think you understand what I do for a living. And they didn't. Yeah. They, they didn't. Obviously, that was, this was when, oh, God, I forget the year. But this is when AppSec was very much a new thing, especially to the government. Yeah. Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, as, as you say that, I'm just, I don't know, it makes me yeah. think back to that well, moment. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> I've forgotten about this for years until you said that. And, and and I think back to it, right? Like I have a, you know, an AppSec like fundamentals course that we teach to developers. And for a long time, you know, back when we worked together, you know, we, it was, we, we taught that course as well, like, you know, way back in the day. But there used to be a section in application security fundamentals for web developers on buffer overflows because we got so many questions that we had to jump in and explain what it was and specifically why it wasn't super relevant to what you're doing when you're talking about SQL injection and other things. But it was the only way that uh, it was the only security thing that most people had, had thought about. But, you know, if you're a QA person, uh, you know, looking at like a website, right? Like, or a web app and that's your job, how, how relevant are buffer overflows or those sorts of low level exploits and, uh, you know, fuzzing and other things, you know, it, it can be argued and, um, but, that, but that's where I have, you know, these issues is we have a tendency to focus on one class of vulnerability, one class of, uh, you know, a specific bug that's been branded and what everybody's been talking about. Uh, and I know, we, you know, we suffer it as, from it as well on the podcast, because we, we do talk about those new things that pop up, but they're not super relevant from a day-to-day -day basis where the basics are way more important than getting those right. Um, but we do have a tendency to jump on the bandwagon for the popular bugs, I guess. If I have any gripes, it's with corporate training. Yeah. That's what I have a gripe with because like, what does everybody have in a, in a corporate environment? They've got their own CMS, right? Their own system. And Seth and I know this because we tried to sell. I mean, we didn't try. We sold uh, yeah. like a training product to clients and one of the biggest hurdles was they had their own CMS system. And why is that important? Because then everybody wants it to be SCORM compliant. SCORM compliant means it's in a format that can be uploaded to any CMS. And when you make things SCORM compliant, you make it garbage training. And I'll, I'll, you can quote me on that. I'll stand by that. It's just not good training. And because like, what are you asking people to do? You're asking them to watch a video, maybe answer some multiple choice questions, and who's ever learned well through that? I mean, the way we do, like, I'll, you know, I don't, I'm not even trying to fluff up, like, talk about our course or whatever, but I'll say, like, one thing we do with our course is we talk, we talk for about 20, 25 minutes of giving an explanation, then we have you do that for another 20 minutes, right? It's like half and half, right? So the reason for this is, and, and every course or every uh, exercise builds upon the last, and it's a progressive escalation, but it's a repetitive escalation as well. And the reason for this is that, the only way for if you, I sit here and I talk your ear off, you're you're not you're not going to do something. You're not gonna, you're not doing something. You're not like having to to run into some pitfalls and raise your hand and ask some questions. And then when you do that, that really sticks inside your head and it really it becomes something you 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 want to do. Like you 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 have a challenge in front of you. It's interesting, and that's the best way to 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 sear something into someone's head. Um, I feel anyways. And, and, and so when you, like I said, when you go to this SCORM compliant format, it like, I'm, I'm happy for someone to tell me I'm wrong and, and explain why, but I, I don't think I am. I think it's just a very blase, 
usually it's required trainings that that go through you know that that scorm compliant cms format yeah and nobody likes that shit so yeah well yeah i mean we've all done it right like we've all uh, you know turned on the video in one window and and then like worked in the other one right especially since the pandemic working from home like everybody doing this and you know so like we turn it on and then you basically just guess whatever it is. Oh, I have to get 70% right. You know what I mean? That, you know, at the very end of it. And uh-huh. yeah, I, I mean, from like a security awareness perspective, like some of the low level ones, I can kind of understand from a compliance perspective, right? Like um, how it got to that point, but I'm with you. It's not necessarily the best, um, the best use of anyone's time or, I'm not expecting someone to take a lot out of that, that style of training, right. Um, new techniques or whatever it is. Right. I, I think you and I learned more from YouTube replicating what people have done, what they, what they demo in those sorts of trainings and those sorts of environments and, and getting hands on keyboard. Right. That's, that's what we force people to do. And any of the trainings that I, you know, that I give that I've been in that I've been uh, like impressed with it's because I have actually had to do it. And it's changed the way that I, you know, I do something in my day-to-day job. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is, by the way, one of the, the things that's made doing virtual trainings for our course so challenging. And, and I think for any, for any course that's usually done in person at a conference style, you know, format like that, that, that is really difficult to do that right virtually. But, and, and it is like, <clears throat> it is what you said, right? Like it's, it's a hand on, it's your hands on a keyboard, right? If, if, if I, if you just watch me type, and then you don't go after, you know, you don't follow behind and, and replicate that. And then even run into some, and I'm, I'm a big believer in, you know, this, you know, some of our exercises that are, are fraught with peril, as we say, right? Yes. And the reason for that is because that problem solving, that's necessary. That's what sears that memory in your, in your head. That's what makes it real. That's what, you know, forces you to not just regurgitate, but to think. Yep. So anyways, I, I, I'm, I will, I will say it, uh, you know, over and over again, I think SCORM compliant training is awful. I don't know why we still make developers do it. That's the worst part too. We know that as security practitioners and what do we do? We make developers take SCORM compliant training. Yeah. Like what are we trying to accomplish? And I think that was what Dave Ferguson, when he came on the podcast and he was like, I don't, you know, I think his, his semi hot take was engineers don't, um, sh- we shouldn't be giving engineers secure code training. I think that was his, his, if I'm, if I'm going back to my memory banks, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's what he meant, right? It more so like, why are we putting them through that kind of, that kind of training? That's not, not incredibly helpful. It's one of the reasons I did, uh, I did like secure and I still do uh, secure code warriors. It's a bit more, um, you know, especially as they offer custom content now, um, or the ability to have your own custom content. I, I like the more interactive kind of game gamification, but, but see, even the gamification can be a, uh, it can be a little limiting if you're, you know, gosh, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty on this, but there is a difference between choosing the right answers and then writing the right answers, if that makes any sense, right? Choosing blocks of code that look secure or like the right fix, or alternatively, the blocks of code that look insecure, as opposed to having to fix that yourself and then you know, have that graded, which is, again, we know a very difficult thing to do this. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I, it, it is, right? And 
yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, and that, that's what, that's why I run into issues with training in general. I, I, I mean, we may have a, a longer talk on this at some point, right? Cause I, like I've been doing some research into training offerings that are out there, like how specific they get. Um, right. Like, but it does, it does feel like in a lot of situations and it, it this isn't a fault on any conference organizer or corporation in general. Right. But the, the trainings don't necessarily always apply. Um, I know you and I have struggled as well for with attendees coming to a training and just being totally unprepared for what it is that they're actually going to learn. Um, like, even though we put in those lists of, Hey, you should have these, these are your expectations. This is what you should show up with on day one. And everybody gets there and no one's actually even reviewed. Right. Like, Bro, the thing that drove me nuts the most is when we would repeatedly with the same client, with a repeat client year over year, we'd say the same thing every time for training. Listen, this is not QA that should attend. This is not the administrative assistants down the hall that should attend. This is not the first year devs you have fixing up your unit test. The this is This is like... You need to have these skill sets. And if you send anybody else without this job focus and these skill sets, it's not going to work. And then inevitably, what will we do? There'd be half the class would be a mix of QA people, people who just like heard about it in the coffee break room and just wandered in. There'd be people that had, they'd be like, well, I thought this was going to be a course on C++. That's what I do. And we're like, well, yeah. that's not what this is. And this is not what we told them that you, you shouldn't have. Why are you? Anyways, every freaking year, that's that that was the end result, no matter how hard we try um, to have the right people sent. And so I felt just as bad for the people that shouldn't have been there as the people that were there, because then the people that were should have been that the people that should be there, they're they're bogged down, down by the people that shouldn't have been there. And the people that shouldn't be there feel like they're dumb or incompetent or whatever. And that's obviously not the case. Uh, it's definitely not the case. It's just a different focus from what they do in a day. And honestly, I love in, you know, on the note of QA testers, I think that's a great place to hook in security testing, but it's not a great place to do, you know, secure development training. Um, yep. Yeah. So anyways, I took so many frustrations with that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, I think this is why like you need to tune your training to specifically to the developers or to the audience that you want to train. Right. Um, and you know, it's, it's very rare that you can take a course, you know, off the shelf and give it to like a wide array of responsibilities. Um, right. Like, I mean, security awareness training is one thing, and there's quite a few that have done that. And even like, like a, an application security fundamentals course, there's a, there's a wide swath of people that benefit from those style trainings. But the second that you get into very specific secure coding exercises, secure coding trainings, like mobile, like whatever it happens to be, that it, it slims down the audience to a very specific few uh, teams or, you know, audiences. And you've got to be really careful with that as far as if you are providing that sort of corporate training, that it is going to the correct people. And then it's not just open up to a wider audience. I know I've, I've, I've struggled with this as well. Like even in a couple of situations with larger corporations where they just basically, Hey, we want you to give you a training. I'm like, great. These are the, you know, here's a secure code review course or whatever it is. This is the audience that we expect. 
we walk in on day one and they're like, well, I don't do any secure code review. Right. Like I'm like, and I'm like, well, what are we doing here? Right. Like you're a, you know, I, yeah, I, like you should be an AppSec fundamentals. Like if that's the course that you wanted as a corporate trainer, you should have like advertised it as such and told me that, but yeah. Anyway, so I'll like, send generalists because they're like, well, now you're going to have AppSec skills. It's like, that's not how this works, but okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah man. Like, I think we've seen it all, honestly. Yeah. You know, and this, here, here's, here's this, is this, oh, go ahead. No, no. Yeah. What were you going to say? Is it still a thing? Because we used to get pushback on having more than one trainer in the room. And the reason for that is obviously you double the cost of travel on the contract for, for doing like corporate training. I mean, uh, this is this is and I mean this in front in a uh, not in our current life, but in a previous consultant where we were both consultants together life, I guess is the yes. best way to say it. Um, you know, we would get pushback on the, the two person thing. I don't know if that's still a thing where people give pushback, but I like I do want to address that real quick for anybody who ever sees this podcast and has purchasing power and is going to ever if you ever run into the situation you really do want more than one trainer there. And the reason for that is as you go through the course, there will never inevitably be someone that has some issue. It could be a computer issue. It could be they're not connected to the Wi-Fi. It could be that they, um, the material, they're having a hard time understanding it. They might have some extra questions that require, and you find this where sometimes people struggle and that's totally fine. But if you, uh, if you continue to slow down the course, you'll never, uh, you know, for that one person, you'll, you'll, you're going to suck. Everyone's going to suffer for it. So it's better to have somebody that can kind of push that conversation off to the side, address it uh, off to the side and, and having that second, uh, that backup. The other thing, there's a lot of other little reasons that this happens. Sometimes, you know, the other trainer, uh, something happens. There's, I don't know, like they get, how many times you've gone on a client site and like an emergency pops, pops up elsewhere and you got to go on a, maybe a customer call or some sales call or something, or, um, you know, something at home happens or they dreaded go on site, eat something wrong the night before situation and you're not feeling good the next day. So there's a lot of reasons, but I always recommend if you're ever in that situation and someone offers you a two contract, basically it's like having a proctor uh, on yeah. site who also knows the material, uh, second, second, you know, proctor. So, uh, you know, I, I would advise uh, going with that if you're ever faced with that situation and not trying to cut costs on that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Also, this is a good one too, Daniel. Sorry, not to, I do want to just real quick, they have different perspectives and opinions. Yeah, that's right. That's the, that's the other thing. Sometimes Seth will be giving, uh, or I'll, I'll, I'll get, I'll say something and Seth knows the material so well, and he knows that I forgot to say something or that he has a different take on it based off of his new newest test that he did. And I'll say, actually, there is like a caveat to that, that I ran into recently. And so like, yeah, there's the, the, you also get like breadth of information. Sorry, that. Thank you, Seth. Yeah, yeah. No, that's. I, I mean, he's absolutely right. And that was that was what I was going to bring up as well is that, you know, having a different viewpoint there can be helpful because, the way that I interpret things is obviously different than the way you interpret things. Um, the experiences that we have coming from different perspectives are always useful, um, and even in the course itself, right? Like we encourage a lot of just talk and, you know, having other backgrounds available to actually explain things will help, right? This is the same reason that, you know, on YouTube, we encourage people to go, go through and explain on their own 
what cross-site scripting is, what, you know, it, it's useful and it may be helpful to other people to blog about something because the way that you learn about it may be different and may help someone else in a way that the way that I learned about it or explain it um, isn't, wasn't as helpful to them. Um, and so like we, we're all trying to lift everybody up together and having that is extremely helpful. Um, yeah. Also sometimes, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's literally like a, an issue with accents because for those that don't know, I'm mostly deaf in my right ear. And uh, when we're in a room with a lot of people and especially with accents, I struggle so bad. And Seth inevitably will be like, I gotcha. And he'll like answer and he'll know it. And I'll, Cause I'll give him the blank look like I have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> and I don't want to continue to keep asking that same person to repeat themselves. I feel terrible. <laughs> And I do warn people, I'm like, hey, I have a little bit of hearing loss, a decent amount of hearing loss, like, you know, all this stuff. And, but still, inevitably, it's nice. Anyways, that just, the last thing you said reminded me of that. It's yeah, not just like a, a clarifying thing. Sometimes it's literally like a physical issue and having you there is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember, okay, so way back in the day, right, like, I, I whatever, like, when I started my training career and, like, consulting career, being going on site to train. And this is where having another person would have been useful. Right. Um, but showing up and like, it was a, um, it was a very formal client, right? Like the kind that, you know, suit tie, like that's the kind of style that they wanted. So I was like, Hey, that's great. Whatever. Right. Throw my suit in. Um, I get up the morning to give the training, you know, pop open my suit and realize that I have like, brought no pants with me right like, <laughs> it's like 7 30 in the morning i'm supposed to start teaching at eight and i'm like ah crap what do i have what do i do was there? this in the desert no this was no. it was a client it was like new york right like oh you know, man financial client and yeah so basically ended up having to run to like a random whatever suit shop right like first thing in the morning having to call the client be like Hey, I'm gonna be late because I forgot my pants, right? <laughs> like, this is... Yeah, oh, double man. double check your outfit as well. I mean, you know, teaching online, whatever, like in person nowadays probably wouldn't be as strict, right? Like it has come down from that. But it would one of those lessons learned from a client perspective or a consulting perspective, right? We're getting some uh some all you need are crocs and socks uh <laughs> comments in here. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's magic. No, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I think I've had that situation before too, while I've, where I've been on site, I had put on a lot of weight. Uh, again, you may not know this, but at one point I weighed 270 pounds. I'm five, nine. Um, I'm not a tall person for 270 pounds. I was a big person. Uh, if you're ever interested in how I lost all that weight, happy to explain it. But anyways, Lost, about, lost a ton of weight um, since then, thankfully, but at the time I'd blown up. And part of that was working remotely from home and being totally undisciplined and all this, right? So why I say that is by the time I had to go back out in the world to go consult on site, <laughs> I was so big. I went to go put my clothes on, like my professional clothes, they didn't fit. So I had to go run out and like that day, do, do the same thing, go to like a Kohl's or whatever and like find my best Kohl's gear. And uh, put on some some cargo or khaki pants or whatever. Uh, so yeah, not not man. The tales of consulting. Yes, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, maybe maybe we should you know next uh, 
Uh, next on-site training you do will only be Crocs and socks. That's it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it'll be just Crocs and socks, but yeah, I think it'll, yeah. We should be wearing Crocs and socks. Crocs and, they're, 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 you know what? Can I, can I make an admission right now? <laughs> you are wearing, see, Crocs. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> I am literally wearing Crocs at this very moment. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, shame. Uh, there's no shame it's all comfort based so well no it's all basics based right yeah that's it it's well with a puppy it's and and muddy conditions out here it's been uh in the woods it's been uh it's been really helpful to it's like you know because i take the puppy out constantly it's been really uh, whatever i'll make any excuse to wear my crocs it's fine there we go Sweet. Anyway. All right. Well, you know, we've talked about training. Uh, we had like 40 articles lined up for today, too. We got we, to none we of didn't even, Yeah, I know. We haven't. We didn't even plan on talking about training. It was just it happened. So there you go. Uh, what do you want to talk about? I mean, there's the, the follow-up article that uh, Daniel did on the Optus breach, which is pretty good. Um, maybe we drop that in there. I know we Daniel and I had a long discussion on it last week, so we probably don't need to reiterate that too much um it's already in the slack channel he shared it there but let's share it on youtube as well um he does walk through the different vulnerabilities and again this goes back to crocs and socks of appsec right um you know the the way that breach happened is it's a comedy of errors right it's a comedy of hey they didn't do x they didn't do y they didn't do z you know and ended up dropping a whole bunch of data and disclosing a whole bunch of data. Um, yeah. Um, what, what other article would you like to review? Yeah. So there's a few, I mean, uh, I'm, I don't, the, the, the secured against forced browsing ones kind of, you know, I feel like that's actually what's funny about that one is I did build, do you remember dirt checks from like my, yep. one of the first apps I ever wrote? It's just like kind of like a thing to speed up enumeration. That's kind of what, that's kind of what that article is. So he's kind of, that person's kind of like showing, you know, how to get like basically paths uh, to all of the content that can be uh, specifically, you know, cause when we, when we talk about web sites, usually we talk about frameworks, but like there's this whole other notion of file-based websites where it's, you know, based off of the content that's low, like the paths are directly mapped to a location on a file system. And so that's one of the things that he, or they, I don't know. I actually don't know who wrote it. That's what they talk about. Uh, and I could pretty, you know, like I can summarize that in a nutshell, which is kind of like enumerating all the content and then requesting all the content without authorization. And that's how you find if you have any endpoints that, yeah. you know, you can forcefully browse to. So I, I wouldn't say, I mean, there's a little bit more to it than that. And we can post a, the article, but I don't think that's super interesting. I think one thing I wanted to ask you, this is why the very first thing I put out there was this uh, raising $24 million for a Web3 bug bounty platform. This yep. is the one I did want to talk about because I'm trying to understand first and foremost, is it, well, I guess, and I think there's probably a very good reason for this, but I, I'm trying to understand why, like what, why would there need to be a separate, uh, you know, bug bounty platform specifically for the DeFi stuff of the world versus the hacker one bug crowd stuff of the world. Is this, do, yeah, I'm going to, let's start there. What are your <laughs> thoughts? So it's Immunify, I think is the name. Immunify. Of the yep. Immunify.com. Um, there <laughs> is no specific reason, right? Um, I, I, it, it's basically just that um, 
the Web3 DeFi technology is different, right? Um, I, I would fully expect some of these companies to start going to Bug Crowd, to HackerOne, to the other bug bounty platforms at some level or it, it, at some point or having, you know, a different section in there. Because there is things in, um, in each of the different bug bounty platforms for, hey, you're good at mobile security or web or, you know, network or whatever else. There will start to be like a DeFi Web3 section, I'm sure. I think Immunify just jumped on the fact that they were already doing, um, they were already working with a lot of these Web3 companies and a lot of uh, cryptocurrencies, you know, DeFi companies as it was and realized that they could create a platform around it specific to that environment. Um, that's, that's really the only reason I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised at some point if they get acquired, right. By one of the other providers and just wrapped into the offerings that something like bug crowd or hacker one already has. Um, but um, I, I mean, good on them for creating a platform that's very specific to web three and I, it's some of the values that are associated with those bugs, if you look at Immunify, are huge um, because, because of the amount of money that is involved, right? And I think that's why it's gotten so much attention is, hey, if you could find a problem in Wormhole or in one of these larger protocols um, that has significant critical vulnerabilities, they will pay huge amounts of money because they don't want to lose that sort of value. Um, and I mean, you see that from web three is going great.com, the amount of money that's been exfiltrated or stolen on those different platforms is huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what, that's, that's, you know, that's, I actually just put in a, uh, a quote that, that says, you know, because like a, a $5,000, they, they put in there like, Hey, a $5,000 payout on a hundred million dollar potential loss is peanuts. So they're 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 uh, going to encourage projects to pay not require but encourage them to pay rewards uh, at a at a rate equivalent to ten percent of the funds at potential risk. We'll yep. see. I mean, it says big vulnerabilities, big vulnerabilities. So somebody has to define what a big vulnerability is, and someone has to encourage them, and maybe they'll, you know. I, I would I would think that they'd be incentivized the the companies that are going to be on these platforms they'd be incentivized to to pay out decent amounts um, you know we'll see I think another thing so before I move on from that like what are your thoughts about the payout aspect you know do you think that's fair uh, I do I I mean honestly right like um, given that you know if you find a critical bug in one of these protocols or one of these cryptocurrencies, uh, like, you know, you look at that recent Solana um, wallet attack, right. And then, you know, 60 some odd million dollars that they were able to exfiltrate or like transfer. Um, that's a significant amount of money. And uh, I mean, even if it's not 10%, if it's 5% or something critical, right. Like whatever that is, is going to save the, you know, the initial company that much money on top of it. it. It's, it feels like the way to go as opposed to, I mean, I don't know, even the Optus breach, like I wonder, you know, how much that was actually worth if they were able to identify that and, you know, push it through a bug bounty, right? Like it'd be, you know, probably tens, twenties, you know, uh, up to a hundred thousand dollars, right? Like, you know what? That wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility there. 
Um, but it was it actually worth more than that, right? Um, I don't know how much Optus is going to be paying out when it comes down to it. Um, and so like that, that harm level really needs to be taken into account when those critical bugs pop up. So, so I, I like, I'm on board it'll, for some it'll, of that, but I want it to be reasonable too. Right. And it'll be, it'll be in some cases pretty hard to, you know, because it is such a, uh, speculative, right. Uh, mm-hmm damage like vulnerability to damage right it's, it's it's obviously i mean you could you can i would assume you 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 can speculate within rough estimates but not so yeah it's gonna it's gonna, i feel like there's there's room for murky water we'll say there with uh with the the scale of payouts being um comparable reasonably comparable yeah but uh i do think the one quote that i took away from this that uh, i agree with from that article is open code and directly monetizable exploits have made web three, the most adversarial software development space in the world. Well, I, I mostly agree with that. Uh, <clears throat> says most, ab- sorry, m- most adversarial software development space in the world. I mostly agree with that. I don't think it's just the directly monetizable exploits and the open code bits. I think it's just the, the shitty infrastructure that's been built and the, Somewhat interesting at times, though, ways that people find to to exploit the uh, the poorly secured code and poorly secured infrastructure. Yeah. So um, I I don't know. Like it's 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 it is an advers. I think it is the most adversarial space right now. But I don't think it's just what is it open code and directly uh, monetizable exploits. So. Uh. Yeah, that's not the only reason. I mean, it's just because there's money available right there's a lot of money associated with it so of course you got a big target right you're you're one of the largest companies in the world i'm sure you get targeted a lot more than you know a little yeah mom and pop shop and running on main street who happens to have a website right like it's just uh you know the the amount of money that's available and i mean that that being said like it being monetizable right being able to extract that DeFi and you know bitcoin is built around this idea of anonymized transactions uh, you know i mean that's always been the fear there is people will use the platform for nefarious purposes and one of those purposes will be to steal money uh, yeah yeah yep you just i like uh, daniel's take here by the way yeah yeah you reading that uh he said uh, the Web3 platforms are quite fundamentally different than traditional orgs because the business process is public by default, as is the source. And so you yep. better make sure it's secure. As it turns out, it's harder to do than, uh, than folks realize. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the whole idea of like blockchain and then you have mining and proof of stake and everything else that goes along with that, right? It's all public, number one. Number two, like you know, you submit a contract or create a contract, it has specific, you know, you're running someone else's code as a miner, right? Like what sort of protections do you have, but also what are you looking at? Um, and then on the flip side, it has access to wallets and coins and everything else. Um, and people can take that code and build it locally and run it locally to look for those sorts of issues. It's just a, it, it's all tied in together in the fact that it is public and it's not well understood on the, on the flip side, how it actually works. Right. 
Um, you ask, ask anyone, <laughs> like, especially that's not necessarily in the space, what Bitcoin is, and you're going to get 20 different answers, right? Like, it's just, it's not well understood. Or, you know, go further than that and ask, ask people what an NFT is hmm. um, that aren't in our space that haven't actually, like, uh, looked into it. And most of them are going to tell you it's like a bored ape, ape image because that's all they know about. And it's no, it doesn't mean that they're, you know, they're stupid or they're unintelligent. It basically just means they haven't, they haven't done the research. There's no reason for them to be in that space, but the security that goes into that sort of a transaction and buying an NFT um, has direct implications monetarily, you know, in the larger financial world. So yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess to put a nice bow on all that, uh, Look out for Seth and I's SCORM compliant Web3 training coming to <laughs> a secure coding course near you. <laughs> no, but you will have to buy. You will have to buy an NFT in order to uh, to attend the course. Just just saying. Right? <laughs> Yeah. But jokes aside, I did want to address one of the comments and it was, it's, it's a good comment. It's, you know, why not invest the money uh, that's being spent into development and security reviews outside of the bug bounty? Uh, bug bounties don't necessarily stop all of these attacks. So I, 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 I some, somewhat agree, but I also somewhat disagree because I think you should do all of it. I think you should do all yeah. of it. Um, yeah. I could tell and you they as, do. A, as they, they right. do. Right? Yeah. And, and, and one of the things I do like about the Web3 space is that there is an expectation that they publicize their secure code review reports. There's an expectation that they publicize um, like the, the assessments, the security of their platform. Whereas a lot of the, you know, the traditional finance space, you know that they're doing you know, assessments, they're looking at security, but they don't necessarily publicize what that is. Sorry, you, you had another comment there. No, 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 yeah, no, I, I, oh man, it's, I mean, I wonder what, is it, is it, uh, I mean, I guess the, the question I, I'm, well, I, I don't have any data to, to find this out, but I, I am curious if, if companies are, are doing these things after the breach or if they're, they're, how much they're doing before, before the, before these breaches occur. Um, and, and then what, if, you know, what activities, you know, were performed from a security perspective, like it'd be, it'd be amazing to see like a, a nice breakdown of um, here's what we had done ahead of all of this, like to, to but here's what we failed at. Here's what we, we could have done, like a, a good analysis of, yeah, just like what could we have done better? Because um, I think yeah. like it'd be nice to learn, learn some lessons there. And I think the only thing I was going to add on to um, now, now I remember what you I did have, I guess, a little bit more. I can say, like, as somebody who runs teams that they just, from an adversarial perspective, that's what we do. We try to find bugs. We try to find holes um, all day long. It does, still doesn't mean you're going to catch everything, and that's where I think bounties are a good... Uh, I don't want to say, like, a catch-all, but it's another way to, for someone else to, to, to put some eyes on it. And there's other things... that you can, you can, you can do outside of, outside of automation. Automation's not, like, a... It's somewhat helpful, but it, there's a lot of things it just doesn't do well right now, um, which is a whole other topic. I have a lot of thought. There's, yeah. there's a whole other things, a set of things I want to talk about, but we don't have time for today around um, 
some 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 beefs with uh, automation tools. But anyways, um, I, I won't talk about that today. Do we have anything else we wanted to cover on this topic or any other topics we wanted to cover? I want to look at our list here. Yeah. Um, make the NFT Crocs and Socks. That's what that'll be the next one. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah so, <laughs> I guess there's so the you, MFA yeah. fatigue thing. I don't know if yeah. you or there's MFA Which fatigue has... and there's all. Oh, sorry. Yeah, MFA, MFA to fatigue, I, I think it's interesting because of the Uber hack that happened, right? Um, the fact that the security engineer whose account was social engineered, right, uh, basically had to respond to an MFA uh, request and the hacker just sent a request over and over and over until he finally clicked accept, right? That was... That's how they got in. And um, which I, I mean, you know, I'm sure he was sitting, whatever, right? Like sitting at home doing something else. And all of a sudden he just started getting pinged for all these requests, decided it was some sort of automated system that was doing it and fit, finally just said yes to shut it up. Right. Um, yeah. They also talk about scenarios in the article where people like accidentally don't, you know, like it's, it's pretty easy on little, especially little screens to, to not hit you know, uh, deny right. instead hit approve. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So I think that's another way that it works. The prevention there that they mentioned, and I, I, I use my Microsoft authenticator literally every day and I wish I didn't have to every day. I don't know why. I well, that's a whole other set of gripes, but anyways, every single day I have to go through this, this, this rigmarole and it involves authenticator. But the one thing about Microsoft Authenticator uh, is that you have to enter in a number, like they show you a number, right? And then you have to enter that in. And that's like the, uh, you know, the idea is that even if you're fatigued, like you're still having to look at a number and enter a number in. So the likelihood of accidentally hitting approve or just, I mean, I think that's the real kind of like thing is like people, it could be they just like get fatigued, but I think it's probably likely also they just hit approve accidentally. Yeah. Especially, you know how like sometimes you just pick up your phone and your fingers like already on the button and face ID makes it easy for it to immediately just like unlock and you hit the button accidentally and boom, you've approved somebody without realizing it. Whereas entering in something that's being shown to you and doing that extra human validation component is like the safest way to kind of prevent that. So, yeah. yeah. And that makes sense, right? I, well, and one of the gripes that I have, you know, having so many different um, MFA providers and they don't have a standard on where the yes no button is, right? <laughs> yeah. So no one no one's following like Apple standard or Microsoft standards on this is okay, this is not. Uh, like, yeah, I, I have denied so many of my own requests because of where the yes versus <laughs> no button is, because <laughs> I'm like, crap, I just need to get in, boom, 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 and I'm like, ah, crap, now I have to start over, right? Like, it just is this. Uh, like, I've insane. disapproved myself as well. <laughs> I've done the same. Yeah. And Jason, yeah. to your point, right? Like they do have nice safeguards for that. And that's what Ken's talking about, right? This this fact that you do have a human component, you still have to put in, you know, 83 in the, you know, in the article or whatever it is to actually validate that as opposed to just clicking yes versus no. Yes, it's me. No, it's not. Um, and I think that's where you're going to have to go with it, what you're going to have to go with in those very secure environments. Otherwise, uh, the MFA fatigue attacks are going to work against your organization just like it worked against uber yeah 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 no um 
as long as you're, I think, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it, what, what's interesting is this resurface, I think because of what you said, the, the Uber hack, but I, I think ultimately I saw this first, um, this, this article, like, I don't know, was this an original article? Let me look at this because it feels like I saw this somewhere else earlier in the year. Yeah. Um, maybe. so this is posted by it the came out, Abrams. it came out probably, well, is the Uber breach. I don't know if it's even referenced in here, but it was about the same time as this article was released. Um, I don't know. Like, it, so it just kind of confirms to me too, right? Like, okay, we have this idea of, you know, OTP, like the one-time token values, um, but we tried to make it easier on users by providing this like push to verify, right? Like, you know, what pushes down to your phone, you get a prompt and you can verify okay. that way instead. Um, which kind of does away with this I idea of OTP, like the one-time token or the one-time value um, that we use, you know, Google Authenticator, Microsoft Authenticator for in the past. Um, and so like, I'd almost, I'd almost go back to, Hey, instead of actually allowing that one-time push that we, you know, in those secure environments, we have to have the, the, the human interact in some way which is providing those values. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. yeah. The first article, uh, yeah, came from, but it was actually GoSecure who wrote the first article back in February, it looks like. And is that right, February? Yeah, February of the, earlier this year. And it was because people were abusing this to for Microsoft 365 users. And from here, da, 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 da. Log analytics, push notification. There are many ways to mitigate this type of tag. Uh, configure service limits, phone sign in. So they have a few more than just the uh, the uh, entering in a number. They have a uh, configuring service limits bit here. Disable push notifications as a verification method uh, inside of 365. Oh, that's just how to handle the 365. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was just curious because I like, dude, this felt familiar. So. Yeah, coming back up. Yep. Well, and it's interesting because it has actually been used in a in an actual attack. Now we have examples of it as opposed to just right like, um, yeah, theoretical attacks. It's now been proven that it works. So so you're going to see it pop up more and more. U2F, FIDO, two keys, the way to go. Yeah, I like it. Um, so I have that and I like it. The only thing I will say is sometimes I'm, I, uh, I'm fumbling around and I like end up putting, I don't want to say it, but I definitely have <laughs> gobbledygook printed in places sometimes where it shouldn't be. <laughs> and then I have to go through and revoke it. <laughs> yeah, it just sucks. But yeah, uh, that's the only limitation is that you sometimes, you t I guess my point is sometimes you touch that key at the wrong the wrong time the wrong and, time uh, yep yeah that's the yep. only downside i've seen so far other other than that it's amazing and mine's got the like it can flip between being you know inserted into like an iphone or like a USB-C as well so it's kind of cool kind of cool yeah well and i i don't know right like to um you know leisure suit larry's point right in in slack like having multiple different right especially as a consultant um, but you know, like the, the number of different like MFA tokens that I have to keep track of and FIDO <laughs> yeah. tokens and everything. I'm just always like, 
banging my head against a wall because I'm like, now, wait, it's been like six months since I've had to, you know, interact with this client. And all of a sudden I've got to remember what's the process. And yeah. Anyway. I don't think this is a problem. Most most people people come, come across, but I could be wrong. I don't know. It's a new, new day, a new age. What do I know about corporate security anymore? Yeah. Sweet. All right, man. Well, I think we've, you know, we've sufficiently, you know, filled another episode with, uh, you know, some good topics. Um, If you would like to interact more, obviously Ken and I are on Slack and there's quite a good discussion that goes on during the episodes, but also after um, as, you know, people have issues or questions or concerns, join us. Um, Yeah. Ken, anything else to wrap up today? Anything else that you'd like to add? I uh, was just going to say that, um, you know, thank you to Daniel for, for last week for hopping on. Um, I've only now been able to eat solid food and such. Uh, so I have not caught up yet with, with much of the episode, but I do plan on watching that uh, now that I feel better and can, yeah, sit here and have a conversation for an hour. So that's nice. Uh, yeah. But yeah, thank you, Daniel. Uh, I was super sick. Really appreciate it. And it was really good. Uh, from what Seth said, it was a really good um, topic. And from the feedback we saw, it looked, it looked like it was a really good uh, conversation. So thank you for that. Um, deep sec in Vienna. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think anything else. Um, yeah, just thanks everyone for listening. Okay. All right. We'll see you all next week. And yeah, appreciate it. Have a good one. Sweet. Thanks.